Well, church, as you're having a seat, if you would grab your Bibles. Great job, band. Thank you all very much. If you would grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, we are uh, continuing in our summer series through the book of Ruth. And so if you are new with us, I uh, want to say welcome, Echoes Josh, welcome to you, uh, and say we're so thrilled that you are here. Kind of the meat and potatoes of how we uh, do church here is we typically walk through books of the Bible. We found, uh, as God has convicted us, that this is the best way for us as a body of believers here to learn from the Lord, to, to know what he wants to teach us, and to lay our lives on top of his good word. And so that is sort of the, I like to say, the meat and potatoes of how we walk through the scriptures together is verse by verse. And we find ourselves in Ruth chapter 2 this morning. Josh preached last week. We're picking up in uh, verses 13. We'll finish chapter 2 this morning, and I believe we will finish Ruth uh, this summer. And so I'm going to read the text that we're in uh, this morning, if you've never read Ruth, I'll, don't worry, I'll do, a, I'll do a little recap before we jump into what the Lord has for us um, this morning. So Ruth, and if you don't have your Bibles, the words will be on the screen for us <coughs> behind me. Ruth 2, 13 through 23. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, this is Ruth, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even from among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles and leave it for her, for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. And so she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out the, what she had gleaned until there was about an ephah of barley, and then she took it up and went to her city. Her mother-in-law, when she had saw what she gleaned, she also brought out and gave to her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, this man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the very end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, uh, Ashley and I, we just celebrated just a few weeks ago our 13th wedding anniversary a few weeks ago. And one thing is true uh, throughout marriage and throughout living life together is that we continue to learn things about one another, right? That's marriage. That's any relationship. You continue to learn things about one another. And we also continue to learn things from one another. And so here in the book of Ruth, we're going to continue to see more and more and more about this couple that we've met, Right? So there's much to learn from this couple, 
And there's much to learn about this couple. And so the book of Ruth is about many things. We've already walked through a number of these themes that we've seen throughout the book of Ruth. But one of the things it's about is about marriage, about a marriage we're going to see. And so you may be wondering, you may, you may be brand new here, and you're like, why are we taking time to study this little Old Testament story? What is this, what's the point of studying the book of Ruth? You may, this may be your first week, you're like, I have no idea. I just intersected into this story. What's going on? There's barley harvests. There's people who I've never heard of. What is going on here? Well, this is a wonderful little story in the Old Testament that teaches us really, really big themes and big ideas about the character and nature of God. It's this wonderful, beautifully written short story. It's a story of a love story. It's a story of a marriage, among other things. It's a love story. It's a story of salvation. It's a story of redemption. And it's a story of a shadow of even salvation to come, even for you and I. And so these characters are the two most unlikely people to meet and be involved in such a wonderful story that we have here. And so it's going to point to us as we go through this, and as we've already seen glimpses of it last week, uh, of another Redeemer. We learned of one here, Boaz, and it's going to begin to point to us and remind us of another Redeemer that's to come one day that has huge implications for you and I, right? And so there's these shadows of the gospel that we see as we read the book of Ruth, this wonderful story in the Old Testament. So it's a story of this guy named Boaz, who we met last week, and it's a story of a lady named Ruth. And it's a story of how they marry and how they ultimately have a child, right? Seems like a very normal story that happens to a lot of people in this lifetime, right? But this child, what's special about this story is that this child that Boaz and Ruth will have will continue the royal line all the way to King David one day. And why is this important for you and I? Because this king, this King David, from these two unlikely people, from this amazing story of love and redemption will ultimately lead to King David who will ultimately lead to another great redeemer in the lineage of our Lord and Savior Jesus. That's why this story is so remarkable. That's why this story is so fascinating, right? So quick recap, Ruth is a Moabite, or in other words, she's not one of uh, God's own. She's not an Israelite. She's not a Jew. She was an ancient enemy of God, the Moabite people. She lived uh, outside of, uh, out in a different country. She lived outside of the promised land that God had promised to them. And it's this story of this Moabite, this former enemy of God coming to faith in God, the one true God. And now this woman, Ruth, is traveling back from her enemy territory into Bethlehem, with her mother-in-law, Naomi, who is of the people of God. Both Ruth and Naomi have lost their husbands, so they're both widows, and they're praying and hoping for better days ahead as they leave uh, this tough, hard situation they find themselves in. They're praying and hoping for better days ahead with the people of God. And so last week, in the very first verse of chapter 2, we meet this guy named Boaz. A new character is introduced in this story of these two unlikely widows, um, uh, Ruth and her mother-in-law, as they travel back into Bethlehem. And now we're introduced of this man, Boaz. And he's a great man. 
He's a wealthy man. He's a businessman. He's a man full of compassion. He sacrificed for Ruth, we learned last week. He provided for the needs of Ruth, we learned last week, this man Boaz. And, in, and also we saw something about Ruth. We saw that this, this, this young woman has a character of gold. We have a lot to learn from Boaz and both Ruth. She loves the Lord. She's faithful to him. She's following the Lord back to a place and land. She doesn't know where her next meal is going to come from. All she has is her mother-in-law, Naomi, who up until this point is not a very pleasant person to be around, we'll say the least, right? Her name means sweet, but uh, she's like, don't call me sweet, call me bitter, right? The Lord has dealt terribly with me. So her only picture of God's people thus far is Naomi. And so, but yet Ruth is still faithful. Yet Ruth still sets her face to Bethlehem and goes. Ruth and Boaz are models to follow. They're these wonderful characters in this story. And so in chapter 2, the theme of hardship and loss that we've been walking through, that Ruth experiences through the loss of her husband, through Naomi's loss of her husband and her sons, great loss and suffering, chapter 2, it begins to change. Chapter 2, the grass is greener, the sky is a bit bluer. These characters are beginning to see some hope through this character, Boaz. And Boaz is a character that the writer of Ruth really, really wants us to pay attention to. He wants us to really see what this guy is all about, how he interacts with people, how he responds to people, how he responds to Ruth, how he responds to his employees and even his workers. The writer really wants us to see this guy, Boaz. And so I want to pick up where we left off last week, looking at this character, Boaz, in chapter 2. And I don't just want to, as we walk through this, I don't want us to just look at Boaz, but throughout this series, what, what you're going to see us doing is I want us to look through Boaz. Because Boaz, although he is a great example for us to follow, he gives us hope and a picture beyond even that of himself, that of our ultimate and great redeemer to come one day. There's shadows of one to come like him, the kinsman redeemer that will purchase back and provide that which we need the very most in our moments of suffering and hardship and loss that we cannot get ourselves out of. So it's a great story of redemption. So we're going to look at Boaz, and we're also going to look through him to see these, these awesome themes play out, these themes of, the, of a redeemer that's to come. So I don't want us to miss this. So behind these two wonderful characters, the whole, one of the main themes of this book of Ruth is the God of history. A God who is working out his sovereign purposes, even in the midst of really troubling situations, even in the midst of really hard things, even in the midst of loss, even in the midst of hopelessness, we see the God of history in his sovereign hand working all things out for our good and for his glory. We see all of these themes and all of these wonderful things happening in this little four-chapter book of Ruth. So, Last week, we saw Ruth's faith in the first three verses. Secondly, we saw Boaz's admiration. We saw his encouragement. And today, we're going to see the beginning of love, right? So this is very encouraging. This is going to be sweet. We see the first date, if you will, right? We're going to see hospitality. We're going to see generosity. We're going to see mercy. And we're going to even see justice. 
All right, so we're going to jump in, and we're going to just plow through all these verses. Verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, he's talking to Ruth. They've, they've just met. It's mealtime. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here. Eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. Men, take notes. That's a good line, right? This is the first interaction. Here they are. Here we have the first date. Some may call it a lunch break with some day laborers. I call it the first date. Right here, it's happening, right? This is, their, this is, this is where everything begins to happen. It's a nice romantic meal out in a field, right? Sometimes we see pictures of these on social media. They're, they're out in the farmland. There's a nice farmhouse table. There's a cup of wine. There's some bread. Boaz has set this all up. It's this, it's this great moment, right? It's a hipster's first date dream come true, right? Talk about farm to table right here. This is where it's happening. Now, there's some other day laborers here, but don't mind them. This is about Ruth and Boaz, right? <clears throat> One could argue both sides. I think it's a nice first date. Now, Ash and I, we had our first dates. I remember back years and years ago, we, we actually had our first date in College Station. Now, I'm not an Aggie, which was weird, and she's not an Aggie, which is weird that we'd have our first date in College Station. She was looking at transferring. I finally worked up the courage to ask her out on a first date. I was living in Lubbock. And she was in Arkadelphia, so it was strange that we would find ourselves in College Station to have our first date. Uh, I didn't know where to go. I didn't know, like, where to take her. So I asked some of my Aggie friends. They sent me to this really nice restaurant. We had this great meal. I took her to a movie. We saw Sweet Home Alabama. Um, it was just out in the theaters. We held hands for the first time. It was magical, electric. Um, and then we went to a park, and we fed the ducks, uh, and it was beautiful. We had a great conversation. That was our first date. That was, here's Boaz's and Ruth's. Uh, some similar themes, minus the wine, but we did have some bread, right? So there we go. That's a little about me. So nice romantic meal. Sets the stage here. Some roasted grains and some dipped wine, right? Ruth and Boaz. But here, we notice some things about Boaz, even in this short little interaction. He doesn't just offer her lunch. He offers her companionship, too. He doesn't just stay over uh, by himself and set her over in the corner. He invites her in, even with his whole crew. Boaz, notice, passes her the roasted grain. He's involved. He's personal. Verse 14 again, come here, eat some bread, dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed her the roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. There's some things to even learn here is a picture of leadership. There's a wealthy man right here, Boaz. He's a boss of many employees. But catch this. He still eats with his workers. He's not some distant guy off in the, the big house barking orders. He's in the field with them. He's with his workers. He's with his employees. He's not isolated himself. I've worked for some men who are isolated from everyone. And it's an easy thing to fall into if you're in any, uh, any space of leadership. It's an easy thing to just want to back away and remove yourself from the everyday. Boaz didn't do that. He leaned in. He knew these men. He ate meals with them in the field. He engaged with them. Boaz shows that he's a servant leader here. Right? He not only eats with his servants and Ruth, but he engages them with conversation and he hosts the meal. He's the one that's, that starts this whole thing. He hosts the meal. He provides what is needed for them. So he eats, he engages, and he hosts the meal, and he even provides enough for leftovers. Did you notice that? Ruth had enough to bring home with her. 
This is my in-laws, right? If you've ever been to one of our church-wide picnics, this is how Jocko operates too. Hey, Jocko, we need this much food. He creates enough for a small army of an Eastern European country for some, like that's just how he's wired. So when I go over to their house to eat, this is how both Carrie and Jocko are wired. I go home, uh, they're like, hey, do you, you have room for some leftovers? I'm like, sure. Okay, well, here's four racks of ribs. Here's a half a cake. Here's nine bags of chips. Here's a thing of queso. Uh, here's a whole chicken I roasted. And then here is uh, all of these other, th- like sliced meats and an assortment of cheeses. It's like, this is the leftovers? Yeah. Right? That's just how it works over there. This is the kind of guy Boaz is. He's like, he provides enough to send them home with sustenance, with provision. It's just a symbol of provision. Boaz gives them what they need and what she needs. She ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. That's, that's, that's beautiful. Think about this. This foreigner in a new land, wondering where her next meal is going to come from. I wonder how long it had been since Ruth had been full. I wonder how long it had been since she had eaten until she was satisfied. And not only that, but she has her hands and arms full for meals to come. That's a big deal. This is the kind of man Boaz is. She's been struggling, and she's been provided for. This is a scene of abundance. It's a scene of provision. Now, when I read this, it just, it screams, alarm bells are going off of the same language of Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? There's similar themes in language as you read in the New Testament, right? I'm going to read from Mark 6. Listen to this very similar language of the provision of Jesus. And they all ate, Mark 6, and they all ate and they were satisfied, Same language in Ruth. Listen to this. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of fish and bread. Not only did they eat until they were satisfied, but there was food left over. Continued provision, continued hope. That's that's how Jesus operates. And this is how Boaz is operating with Ruth. This is beautiful. Boaz is generous, and he's hospitable, and he goes even further beyond hospitality, and he tells the workers this in verses 15 and 16. Now, when she rose to glean, right, she's meaning that she's going to go work in the field and try to provide some wheat and barley for herself uh, with the leftovers, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Verse 16, and also pull out from some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Her belly's full. She has food to bring home. And then he looks at his men and says, leave more out for her along the way. I want her job to be easier. Don't make her do it all herself. In fact, take some from out of the bundles and lay it down so that when she goes home, she has more than enough. I want her to be provided for. I want her to be cared for. Don't rebuke her. Don't tell her it's not hers, that she cannot touch it. Boaz is saying, I'm telling you, you can do this. And then verse 17, it says about, about Ruth, so she gleaned in the field until evening. And she beat out 
what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. This woman is a hard worker. This woman is a very hard worker. How much barley is this? We don't really deal in these measurements that the Bible often gives us, so we're often left in kind of in the dark. We're like, what does that mean? I have no frame of reference. Uh, Most scholars believe that this is probably about 30 pounds of grain. That's a ton. That's a tremendous amount of grain. So whether she had to pack it, leave it and pack it back a couple of trips, or she took the whole sack and, and took 30 pounds on her back by herself along with the leftover she had, this woman had grit. This woman was something else. Her character is amazing. She probably had to walk home for miles from where she was. She was, she's a beast, right? I mean, this lady's something else. Now, we watch a lot of American, Warrior, American Ninja Warrior in our house with our family, and my kids love it, and I love it, and I think she would have been really successful at American Ninja Warrior. This, Ruth is a pretty formidable person, right? She's just threw 30 pounds of uh, barley on her back, and she's got her leftovers, and she marches home however many miles because she's been provided for. She doesn't, look, she doesn't complain. She doesn't look for someone else to do it for her. God provides for her, and she just does what she needs to do to get back that which she's been given. And it was hard work. It was hard work. Now, before we move on to the final little part of this chapter, I think it's worth highlighting some of the features that we've witnessed in Boaz in chapter 2 thus far from last weekend and from this morning. So initially I had men take notes here, but I think this goes for men and women. Because uh, we can learn some really, really practical lessons from Boaz as we read about this man and what he did and how he acted and how he inter- interacted with those he works with, those that work for him, and this young woman, Ruth, right? These are some really great qualities to work toward. Because if, if you're a believer in here and... Uh, you work in the home or you work in a secular environment, these are some really great things to learn from. First thing we're learning, I'm going to look at five things, and we're going to uh, finish the rest of these uh, verses. First thing is he integrates his faith and work, Boaz does. He doesn't separate his faith in his everyday life. In other words, he doesn't compartmentalize God. Every, and everything else. He doesn't have, oh, this, these are my workers, this is my business, and then I've got the, the commandments of God to care for the poor, to leave out a portion of my field, to care for those that are in need, and uh, I've got, uh, I, I'll just ignore that because I want to capitalize and maximize all my profits. Boaz doesn't parse these things out. He's a man of an integrity. He, he integrates these things because it's one life that he's leading, Right? He's not just a Sunday morning follower of God. It really shows in his everyday interactions with people, his faith and his commitment to the Lord and to the people that God has entrusted him and put in front of him in his path. This is a great lesson for us to learn. Secondly, he provides for the hungry. He allows Ruth gleaning privileges. He gives to the poor widow when she needs it. He obeys the scripture to care for the poor even when it was costly for him. This is how he makes a living. These are his fields. This is how he provides for his family, how he pays his workers, his employees. So this was a costly sacrifice for him, but it was worth it because he knew here is someone in need and I'm willing to do what the Lord has asked me to do and provide for the hungry. 
He obeys the scriptures even when it costs him. Church, is that us? Do we obey the scriptures even when it costs us or only when it benefits us? This is a tough lesson. Third thing we see about Boaz. He speaks words of dignity and he speaks words of respect. He shows her where to drink water. He honors her faith. He prays for her. He speaks kindly to her. He invites her to his table for food and fellowship, not a different table somewhere else, at his table. And he urges his men to allow her to glean more than she ever imagined. Fourth, he protects the vulnerable. This was on his radar, right? Multiple times we read this. He's very unlike the men of his day that were either passive and just let the widow walk through without mention or even thinking about them. Oh, uh, someone else will take care of that. And he's also not abusive. He doesn't take advantage of someone who is in a very tough spot in life. Now for men, these are two consequences of the fall that we see as men, if you're going to generalize it. Men are prone to two ways. We are prone to passivity because of the fall, or we are prone to abuse. If you're going to generalize and polarize on either end. We're prone to say, oh, that's not my fight. I'll just let someone else deal with it, and we'll let, uh, we'll let wrongs pass in front of us, or we'll let needs pass in front of us, and we just won't get involved, even if they're right in front of us. Or we're prone on the other end because of sin, because of the fall, that when we see vulnerable situations, we pounce and take advantage of them. And we could go and describe countless examples of that as well. But the gospel, the scriptures, give us not a way in the middle, but a new way entirely. To say, no, God has called us not to be passive and not to just look at the needs in front of us and let them pass us by, but to step into and help and provide and be full of integrity and full of care and full of love. Passivity is not a virtue. The Bible calls it a sin. James tells us that the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it is sin. So Boaz here in this story takes initiative. He's not passive. He's using his influence for those that have no influence. He gives voice for those who have no voice. He gives power to the powerless. It's beautiful. And lastly, something we learn from Boaz is he practices great hospitality. He takes an ordinary occasion such as lunch and transforms it into this display of generosity and kindness. I love the communal nature of this meal that he provides. They're dipping bread and wine, something as simple as that, but he's inviting others into it. Are we inviting those that God's put in our path into our homes, into our lives, and taking something as simple as a meal that Jesus also models for us and leans in and, prov- and makes, turns it into something sacred, something great, something that we can, uh, taking something as simple as bread and wine and making it something to be shared. Jesus does something remarkable later with bread and wine and gives us an ultimate imagery of something beautiful, an ultimate redemption as well. Verse 18, as we move on. And so she took it up, meaning all the food, and she went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, 
And she also brought, brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So you have to marvel here at Ruth's loyalty and care to Naomi. Remember, Naomi was a pretty hard person to love, right? She was negative. She was bitter. She was questioning God. She was just, I mean, she was not in a good place, right? And here, Ruth goes back again and provides what the Lord had provided for her and lets Naomi in on the provision. Ruth is this loyal person. It's amazing. Do we find it hard to love better people? Do we find it hard to serve people that are in a tough spot, that are not seeing it like how we hope they would see it? This is how Ruth this is all Ruth has known in her journey so far as a, as a believer, as one who is following God, is Naomi. This is the person she followed. Yet she keeps loving her, keeps serving her. Church, Ruth shows us that those who have been shown the grace of God show the grace of God to others in return. Verse 19, And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, uh, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And here, right here, this is, a, this is a fun moment. Naomi, for the first time in the book, takes a new tone. She's finally not bitter. She's finally not mad. Here the story of Naomi's transformation finally begins. Chapter 1, she was not going to be caught ever saying, blessed this man or blessed that man, Right? That didn't ever come out of her mouth. And now we're going to see her in chapter, chapter 2, see the Lord's grace breaking through in her heart. The skies are bluer, finally, for Naomi. The sun's beginning to shine, finally. Her circumstances are changing. And she recognizes now for maybe the first time in a long time that the Lord isn't against her. And she says, I don't know who this guy is but blessed be this guy. And then Ruth says, this guy's name is Boaz. And now Naomi really begins to lift her head. A smile maybe even breaks over her face. And she says these two things in verse 20. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now Naomi's blessing everyone, right? Before it was like, don't call me sweetie pie, call me bitter. Now she's like, blessed him, bless, you know, now it's like, Naomi is changing. This is, this is remarkable in the story. We're meant to kind of feel this change in Naomi's demeanor and then her, her disposition. She sees that God's not forgotten her. Look at the second response. Naomi then said to her, this man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. He's one of our redeemers. This is significant. This, this Hebrew word means kinsman redeemer. This guy's one of our kinsmen redeemers, Naomi says to Ruth. And you're like, we're like, what does that mean? That doesn't mean much to me. Well, a kinsman redeemer is one who is able to come to the aid of a family member. And this is introduced here, and it's going to be developed more in chapter 3 as we go on in the coming weeks. The kinsman redeemer, someone in the family, was obligated to buy back any relatives if they fell into great debt or even into slavery. They found themselves in a hard place. A kinsman redeemer would come along and provide what was needed for those that were in a troubled place. So sometimes this person was obligated to marry the widow to raise up the children of a brother who maybe died who was without a child. 
And so this would ensure that the inheritance would continue to be associated with that family. Keep it in the family. This kinsman redeemer was this important person. And so here Naomi sees that Boaz is not just some nice guy that provided some food for them that would give them an ability to fill their bellies, but Boaz is a potential husband for Ruth. She's like, wow. But before we anticipate the big wedding, before we anticipate all the good news that's going to happen, there's a few problems that pop up in this little short story that provide some tension for us. Right? And we're like, oh, man, what's happening here? First, notice this. Naomi says, Boaz is a redeemer, not the only redeemer. Uh-oh. So you're, we're supposed to kind of, when we're reading this, we're supposed to say, what do you mean a redeemer? This is, Boaz is amazing. Look at all that he's done. Like how, this is the right guy, right? This is, this is how the story is supposed to end. It's supposed to go happily ever after. There's another one. So there's, now there's a bit of tension that the writer introduces on purpose in this story. And shaping up like an ancient episode of The Bachelor, some might say, right? So you're like, well, what's happening here? This seems strange. How could this be? How could there be another guy? And the new guy is actually a closer family relative than Boaz, which was later confirmed in chapter 3. So we're left to wonder here about this amazing guy that we've just met in chapter 2, all of chapter 2, that's just pouring on the accolades of this amazing man, Boaz, and this foreign widow, this unlikely couple, and she's in desperate need, and we're left now wondering what's going to happen to these two. This amazing first interaction, their first date, it seemed to have gone so well. Is it going to work out? We don't know yet. But for Naomi, the sky is much bluer. Um, so, in fact, we know that Naomi is really, really excited about this because next week we're going to get to some more romance. And uh, some, it's, yeah, so I mean, Naomi's really excited. So, in fact, she, in chapter three, it's going to just involve dressing up Ruth just right, having her put on some nice perfume. It's going to involve her meeting Boaz at an appropriate time, so he's in a really good mood. So, it's romance next week is going to happen. Stay tuned. But in the meantime, Naomi's just really, really excited about the possibility of what's going to happen here with this young couple. Verse 21, and Ruth the Moabite said, he puts that in there, Ruth the Moabite, to provide just that shocking understanding of this woman's a Moabite, a former enemy of God, and here's Boaz. Besides, he said to me, you shall keep by my men until they have finished all of my harvest. So this may be six or eight more weeks, meaning you don't just have provision for today, but you have until the end of the harvest. In verse 22, and Naomi said to her, said to her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Naomi says, stay close to this guy. Stay close to his field. In verse 23, the last verse, as this chapter comes to an end, so she kept close to the young woman, women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. 
And if you have any kind of romantic bone in your body, if you are like wondering what's going to happen here and you're wondering how chapter two is going to conclude, is Boaz going to maybe swoop in and say one last thing and maybe ask her, that, can I see you in the field again tomorrow? Uh, do you want to dip some roasted grains and some wine again tomorrow at lunch? Or uh, maybe we can go see Sweet Home Alabama in a couple weeks or how, like what's, what's the next couple of weeks looking like for you, right? You're just wondering, is this going to happen? Is this going to end And it couldn't end any more depressing. And she lived with her (laughs) mother-in-law. What? No! (laughs) Boaz! You missed it, bro! It's like, that was your chance, man! Everything was going so well! And she lived with her mother-in-law. I have a wonderful mother-in-law. That would be just an honor for me to do, but I mean, if you're talking... Right, right? So note to the ladies, real quick, just practically, I mean, men are, we're just slow. We just don't get it. We don't see the clues. We don't understand it. It just takes us a long time. So true love is going to have to wait until chapter three. That'll be next week, right? But Ruth contributes. What do, what do we learn here? What, like, what are we looking at this for, Right? Ruth contributes to our understanding of redemption by giving us a concrete example of it. Now, we use that word redemption a lot in church. Like, that's a very churchy word, like redemption. It probably doesn't come up in your typical, like, finance team meetings or your, uh, what, you know, in your everyday vernacular. But redemption, this theme is pastors use this word a lot. The Bible uses this word a lot. It's biblical language. What does it actually mean? Or we, can, we, we begin to see a concrete example of redemption here in the book of Ruth. And it runs across the biblical story arc all the way across the Old and New Testaments. And we learn about redemption, and we learn the great need for redemption, and we're going to conclude with these four things quickly. But we learn about redemption and the storyline of redemption from the book of Ruth, even into our own redemption, in four real practical, meaningful ways. The need for redemption, the price of redemption, the glory of the Redeemer, and the familial nature of redemption. So we learn about redemption because, like Ruth, she was in desperate need. She had no way to unwork herself out of the situation she found herself in. The Bible is painting this picture that in, even for us and in our redemption, what we're waiting for our great redeemer in the, in, in the person of Jesus, that we can't just work our way out of our need, that sin has placed us in a position of great need, that we can't just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and get out of that which is over us. We're dead in our sin, the New Testament tells us. We're in desperate need of redemption. The need is great. The price of redemption. The book of Ruth will generate even more discussion about this, that the price of redemption. But the Redeemer has to be willing to pay the price that's deemed to redeem those that are in desperate need. Boaz, as we learned here and will continue to learn, was willing to pay the price. It costs him. In Exodus, this happens, this theme. The Passover lamb had to pay the price. And it pointed to one that would come that would be the ultimate Passover lamb. The New Testament escalates this nature. Paul says, we were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6. Jesus is our great Passover lamb now. His blood now covers us that we will not die but have life everlasting with the glory in the Father forever and ever. 1 Corinthians 5. Jesus' death 
is the ransom paid for us. He did that which we could not do, that we could not get ourselves out of. We've been redeemed, not with silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ, 1 Peter. Third, it points to the glory of the Redeemer. So to be the Redeemer involves both the willingness and the ability to redeem. Boaz had both. He was both a man of moral worth and material wealth. Christ, our Redeemer, is both willing to redeem us and has the ability to do it. He was willing to empty himself, to give all of himself, to go to the cross, living the life that we could not live, dying the death that we deserve to die. His ability to redeem goes beyond even that of Boaz. For Christ has come not just to redeem just one person, or not even just a nation, but all nations. His redemption is pervasive by faith alone. Because of his immeasurable worth, his atonement has immeasurable value. There is no redeemer like the redeemer of Christ Jesus. And Ruth, even in the Old Testament, has us longing for that and helps us understand that. And lastly, the familial nature of redemption. Throughout Scripture, this concept of redemption extends to family, the realm of family. That Boaz is this relative and he's this redeemer who will extend the family line, which will eventually lead to King David, which will eventually lead to our great redeemer. And Ruth and Boaz's relationship involves increased relational unity and marriage. In the New Testament now, we are called the bride of Christ. It's relational. It's not just far off. It's not just this distant thing that one day we'll get to see it and get to experience that we are now sons and daughters of the Most High because of the great blood and the redemption that Jesus has provided for us and bought for us and paid for us and now freely given to us by faith. So now we are, we are we're sons and daughters, Galatians. Paul describes it like this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, relational, familial. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. We have a great legacy now because of Christ. Our great redeemer has come and has wrapped us up in something bigger than we can ever imagine. So this has even implications for us as we talk about all these little ones back there. We have a great responsibility to proclaim the goodness of the Redeemer that has come for them as well. To tell them of their great Redeemer. That is nothing that they can do to earn it, but he has come freely and he has given his life and his blood that they may be adopted sons and daughters of the King as well. We have a chance to lay out this great legacy that we are wrapped up in as well. And it is of utmost importance, church. It is a big deal and a big responsibility. And the Lord in his grace has uh, given us about a hundred of them, little ones back there, to be able to steward this great responsibility. And it's something that I don't want us to take lightly, that the legacy of followers of Jesus, that he has blessed us, and now we get to tell of the great Redeemer to come to those and to more people in our community, inviting them into the family of God to make them 
help them understand and see and have their hearts be reborn as sons and daughters of the great king that we worship. Let's pray together, church, and worship him. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you and your goodness and kindness would call us uh, sons and daughters. Lord, it's, it's nothing that we've done. It's nothing that we've earned. It's nothing that we have provided for ourselves. We didn't get it and others didn't. Lord, it's by your favor, by your good grace, through your son, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, and by faith alone that you now look at us and see sons and daughters of the Most High. And so, Lord, help us to worship and love and celebrate and talk about and pass on the great Redeemer that has come for us in Jesus Christ. And thank you that all of your word, even in the Old Testament, shows us this story and thread of redemption throughout it all. Lord, may it well up in us worship of our great Redeemer, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship him, church.